Help us, we pray, Lord, or we are beyond help. Come to us, we ask, and grant us ears to hear. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit, like a good plowman, would come and break up the fallow ground of our heart and make our hearts good to receive the good seed of your word. Grant us, Lord, a reformation of personal faith, personal godliness, personal priorities. Reform us according to the word of Scripture, the very word of God, by the reading and by its preaching, we ask. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So instead of 23.12, let's begin at 23.11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush from, for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. 
When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is God's word. Beloved, the primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 was a man named Zacharias Ursinus. Now, technically, his real last name was Bayer, which is German for bear, which means his name in Latin should have been Ursus. But he took the name Ursinus, which means little bear, because he wanted to have some fun over the fact that he was quite large as a man. Well, fortunately for us, Zacharias Ursinus also produced a large body of written work. He lectured extensively on the Heidelberg Catechism while professor at the University of Heidelberg under Frederick the Elector III. And these lectures were later published as a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, where you find a great discussion on question one, which we confessed just a little earlier this morning. It is there that your sinus says this about comfort. Comfort is that which results from a certain process of reasoning in which we distinguish between a thing good and a thing evil, that by a proper consideration of the good, we may mitigate our grief and patiently endure the evil. Your sinus goes on to show there are many false answers in the world about what is good, which leads to much false comfort in the world. The only good that truly meets the demands of our moral nature, says your sinus, is the doctrine which the church imparts, a comfort that quiets and satisfies the conscience. What is this good that imparts true comfort? Your sinus says, quote, the assurance of the free remission of sin and of reconciliation with God by and on account of Christ and a certain expectation of eternal life impressed upon the heart by the Holy Spirit through the gospel so that we have no doubt but that we are the property of Christ and are beloved of God for his sake and saved forever. That's the true good. This, of course, is the same good which Paul speaks of in Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Great comfort is yours when by faith you reason that every evil that touches your life has done nothing to molest the great good you possess in God through Christ. You have an inconquerable comfort when you come to that reasoning of your possession of an inconquerable good. In fact, those evils which touch your life In fact, all things that touch your life, 
They must now be servants to you. You confessed a moment ago, subservient to you. They all, even the evil, the cruel master, the unkind husband, the thief, the robber, the 40 assassins, all that evil which touches your life, in fact, all things that touch your life, must now be servants to you to strengthen and keep you in the good of God's saving grace in Christ. Beloved, this is what is happening with Paul in our text today. He is carried along in the comfort of an unbreakable union with Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of majesty. In verse 11, we read how Jesus visited Paul in the night. Jesus stood next to Paul's bed. Jesus spoke to Paul about his personal future. Jesus said, take courage, Paul. You testified about me in the great city of the Jews. You will also testify about me in the great city of the Gentiles, Jerusalem and Rome. Take courage. Paul, of course, when he hears these words, is in the control and the captivity of evil men. Have you ever been in that situation? Under the control and under the captivity of evil men? Many people are right this hour. Many believers in Christ are right this hour. Paul is in the control and captivity of evil, evil men. To people looking in on his life, Paul looks like a failure. He looks like he's abandoned by God. He looks like a fool. He looks like he has chosen the wrong friends, chosen the wrong faith, chosen the wrong priorities. Yeah, that Paul, no wonder he's up there in the barracks. What an idiot. Imprisoned by Romans, hated by the Jewish leaders, surely God must reject Paul too, right? Heaven must think of Paul the way earthly authorities think of Paul, right? Wrong. Wrong. God is no respecter of men. The risen Christ, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, our Lord Jesus draws near to the prisoner, not to the captors. Jesus visits and comforts Paul with his presence and power and his promise, the prisoner Paul. Jesus, the Lord and judge of all things, does not visit and comfort the mighty and the powerful of the earth. If political freedom is the greatest good, then Paul is bankrupt of that which is good. If the admiration of other men is the greatest good, then Paul is bankrupt. If having control of one's earthly destiny is the greatest good, then Paul is bankrupt. But if being reconciled to God if being united to Christ, if being conformed to the image of Christ, if being used in the service of Christ, if suffering for the name of Christ, if being brought through death into the arms of Christ, 
If these things are the greatest good, if these are the greatest goods that can befall a human being anywhere, then everything happening to Paul is working for his good, moving him deeper and deeper into that which is good, from glory to glory, from faith to faith. What do you want? What do you want? I want something good. What good do you want? Beloved, you live in Pleasantville, Wisconsin. I don't care if your zip code's different than mine. I know where you live. You live in Pleasantville, Wisconsin. Everybody in Pleasantville is telling you what you want is for your kids to be admired by the world. What you want is to have a cottage and a boat and a camper and every weekend to yourself. You live in Pleasantville, Wisconsin. Everybody is telling you, you want the true good that you should want is 30 years of retirement, 100 hobbies in retirement, and a million dollars to enjoy it. Paul has much more good going for him than anybody who's chasing after that stuff. What do you want? I, can know, I know exactly what you want. If I just had a printout of your prayer transcript, I would know what you want. What do you want? Tell the truth. You are learning today what is truly good and what it looks like to be obtaining it. Do you know what it looks like? It looks like pain and suffering all through the days and weeks and years of worshiping God through Jesus Christ. And this good has already taken root in you. That's why you are here to worship God even now today in Jesus Christ, isn't it? You're doing the very thing at least in a beginning way, aren't you? That the Spirit comes to give you as he applies to you what Christ has accomplished for you. Now, Jesus said to Paul in verse 11, take courage. Does courage have anything to do with the comfort spoken of in Heidelberg question one? Absolutely it does. Christians take courage after we have taken comfort. Divine comfort fills the well. Courage draws from the well and drinks it. Courage is getting up and spending the capital of your comfort. And sometimes it's just a very ordinary courage, basic, ordinary Christian obedience, That's courageous in a world of disobedience. In fact, in churches of disobedience. Basic, ordinary Christian obedience, telling the truth, staying faithful to one man and one woman, keeping the Sabbath holy, worshiping God, not stealing and fighting covetousness in your prayers and life. Basic, ordinary Christian obedience takes courage, but you have to first take comfort or else your courage will not go very far. So courage is taking action to do God's will 
even though the pathway for doing it is crowded with trials, difficulties, pain, trouble, danger, disappointment, and suffering. Courage looks down that path, sees all of those thorns, and says, I'm going anyway. Why? Because courage has already taken comfort. And comfort, the comfort of that good which we have in the risen Christ, is more compelling than all the difficulties down the trail that we see. You would say, well, those are awfully compelling. Well, not more compelling than my comforts. So I take courage and go. This is why scripture says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Second Thessalonians 2.16. So with an established heart, Paul does not throw in the towel that night. Paul does not commit suicide. Paul does not conspire with his nephew to escape from the prison. Paul does not ask his relatives to raise some cash, and I think I can bribe the centurion to accidentally kind of let me out. Maybe maybe he'll come with me if we can pay off his retirement. Paul stays put. He stays in his affliction, and he waits on the Lord. And while he is waiting, little does Paul know how intense the plan to destroy him is becoming. And we see this in verses 12 through 15. Paul is already under arrest, right? But now more than 40 fanatics among the Jews take a vow to neither eat nor drink till they kill him. This is pure fanaticism. You know that your friends are fanatics. This is a a bonus, bonus point. You know your friends are fanatics when they want to act outside the proper channels of ordained authority. Now, sometimes your leaders can be fanatics. That's another sermon. But it's clear evidence that these men are fanatics because they want to act judicially Bring a man to death outside the proper channels of authority. They openly and they willingly put themselves under a curse if their plan should fail. That's their vow. Beloved, this is the dark fellowship of rage and lawless violence. They are men on fire, these men. On fire to control other men, namely Paul, so they can tell themselves they are right. Power proves the truth to such men as these. Power does, not the word of God. Learn from them so that you're not numbered among them. Now, of course, all that we see in 12 through 15 is designed by the hand of God as a kind of foil God withdraws his hand of restraint from these 40 men, letting them go more and more down into their true nature, which is violence and hatred. So God allows a strong evil to be planned against his servant Paul, just like he allowed a strong evil to be planned against his righteous son, Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul gets the privilege of imitating Christ, having Jewish leadership want to crucify him. Would you consider that a privilege? Beloved, wouldn't it be a privilege to die violently for the name of Jesus Christ? That would be a privilege. But it would be contemptible of God's hand if you made it happen. It would be contemptible of God's hand if you didn't take up every advantage to continue in the ministry of love and gospel preaching. But if God ordered for you to die for Christ, it would be a great privilege. And if you doubt what I say, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus over and over again prepares his disciples by saying, some of you will be called to honor me with your very lives. But we are going to see the qualification that I just stated more clearly in a moment. But understand something. These men are being used by the almighty hand of God to create a very troubling, dark situation for Paul so the more glorious and vivid will be the kind providences of God that will deliver Paul. The whole scene sends an echo of encouragement down through the history of the church saying to us, do you have one enemy who wants to destroy you? Do you have 10? Do you have 30? All the enemies you have cannot undermine God's appointed plan to keep you, to bring you, and to use you to testify of his grace and glory in the earth. That's what we are learning for the whole church from this scene again. So, beloved, what you are seeing in verses 12 through 15 are what the wicked are for. Why are there the wicked? We sang about them a moment ago in Psalm 1. Why do the wicked remain upon the earth? Well, they are used by God as his rods. They are used by God as his instruments to chastise those whom he loves, his children. Not to punish us. No, our sins have been judicially punished once. There's no double jeopardy in the gospel. We are not being punished for our sins. Christ has borne our, our, our sin penalty. But we are disciplined as children. God ordains the wicked to this end so his children might be separated more and more and more from the corruptions of the world to testify more and more sincerely that our rest and satisfaction is outside the world, in the heavens, at the right hand of majesty, where Jesus Christ is. Now, while Paul is waiting on the Lord to work all things together for good, a remarkable providence takes place, which is described in one verse, verse 16. Remarkable providence. That used to be a a regular column in World Magazine. I don't know if any of you ever subscribed to World Magazine, but every issue they had a back page called Remarkable Providences, where they would tell of something happening in recent history that sounds a lot like what you're about to hear in verse 16. The son of Paul's sister 
somehow heard about the ambush those 40 murderous fanatics had planned against Paul. Paul's nephew, which of course reveals that Paul has family in Jerusalem. And this nephew is able to go up and go into the barracks and relay to Paul the secret news of what is about to happen to him. Now, this is how prisoners often got their food, often got their clothing. They got it from visiting family. Otherwise, they didn't have food, didn't have clothing. Now, this whole sequence of events described in verse 16 is stuffed full of remarkable providences that we do not have the details on, but they are clearly present. Why was this young man out and about at the very time of day which he overheard the plot? Did he have an appointment? Was he running an errand for his mother? Was he involved in some mischief, perhaps? Was he throwing fruit at some wall that wasn't his own? Why was he out? Where was it that he was walking when he overheard this plot? Or was he sitting down when he overheard it? Why did he turn down that alley and not the other? Why did he stop in the line in front of the baker's store and not that other store? What did he hear? Why did that one of the 40 assassins decide to tell that relative at that very time about the plot? Or why did he decide to tell his brother at the very time? Or why did he decide to tell his cousin at the very time? Or why did two of the 40, perhaps, decide to talk aloud while they walked down the street or stood at the corner near this young man? Remarkable providences unfolding in the ordinary life of Paul's nephew, all under the hand of God, clearly the stitching of Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and have been, have been called according to his purpose. Whatever the details were and how he heard the plot or where he heard it or from whom he heard it, whatever the details, that which was whispered behind closed doors by 40 fanatical assassins was within hours being whispered into the ear of the tribune. And beloved, that is better tech than anything GPS could produce or NSA could produce. That is the Lord's way. The wonderful thing is that these details, un, they begin a counter plan with much greater resources, many more troops than 40 assassins could ever handle or would dare to touch. What is God doing? He is working to advance his gospel, and he is working out the good of his children, even when we cannot see it. Even when we cannot see it. Paul couldn't see his nephew. He didn't know where his nephew was. He didn't know his nephew was coming to visit. And he certainly didn't know his nephew was coming with this news. But far away from Paul, the Lord is working. Far away from your life, beloved, right now, the Lord is working in the lives of other people to bring about that good that he has promised you in Jesus Christ. And that is not a worldly good. That is not putting you on top in the world. It is a kingdom good. It is giving you faith, hope, and love. It is giving you the endurance 
of the children of God. It is giving you rest and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. It is giving you the good that could only be bought for you by the body and blood of Christ. But it's being worked on right now. And I didn't meet my wife until I was 25. Somewhere, somebody, through God's mighty hand, was working in her life, making her the woman that she needed to be to get married and stay married to me. It was a miracle. A mighty hand of providence. And yesterday, we're riding our bikes, and she's ahead of me, and I'm coming up behind her on my bike, and I'm hearing this noise coming from her bike, and something's coming out of her phone, which is on her little phone cradle. And I said, what are you listening to? And she goes, I'm listening to RefNet. <laughs> She's listening to Reformed preaching while we're on the bike trail. I mean, I could have never made a wife like that. And I feel like I'm triply blessed as a pastor to have a wife who loves the word of God as much as she does. But I didn't do that. God did that. The seeds of it were sown when I didn't even know there was a field like her heart to sow them in. Beloved, the Lord, even now, is working in his providential hand to draw you deep and smother you with his good. But it is not the goods of the world. It is the goods of the kingdom. In fact, you know that you are really enjoying the goods of the kingdom when the goods of the world start to look dull. They look faded and cheap, and you want them less and less. So this whole scene of verse 16 reminds us of what Mordecai said to Esther when she learned about Haman's plot against the Jews. Uncle Mordecai said to niece Esther, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, Esther 4.14. This is a great encouragement, isn't it? For, you, for all of us to just go about our business in lawful ways, doing the ordinary things of life. We don't have to be doing the extraordinary things. We don't have to be jumping off the top of temples. We don't have to be walking down the street with a big sandwich board that says turn or burn. We can just live ordinary Christian lives like the nephew was. Was he out buying bread? Was he just leaning against a wall? Just leaving, leaving, leading an ordinary lawful life by faith unto God and the things we will do in that ordinary lawful life will bring about the good providence of God for his church. Now, it's really quite wonderful to me that Paul finds out about the murder plot the same moment he sees God's provision to avoid it. This is often how God's plan works out for us. Not always, but often. That is, we do not learn about all the trouble we are in until we also learn about God's provision to escape it or to endure it. The Lord always provides a way out. He always provides a way through. He always provides a solution, even if it is not the one we expected. And sometimes the solution is death. 
But the Lord always provides the arms of Jesus for those who die in faith. Now, in verse 17, we have what I called earlier an important qualification. The Apostle Paul, having the news of the plot, takes action. He calls one of the centurions and says, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. We have to really see how important this is. This is how providence works. Paul does not remain passive with the new information that he's received from his nephew. He doesn't lie down and say, God is going to deliver me. God, Jesus just visited at my bedside last night. I'm not going to do anything with this information. I'm just going to sit here. No, he sees what the Lord is doing. The Lord is giving him a way through, a way of advancement to fulfill the Lord's will. He takes the information and calls for the centurion. Beloved, this is knowing that secondary causes are also from the Lord. Secondary causes are also from the Lord. And we should not pour contempt on the Lord's care of us by refusing secondary causes. Paul does not say, I am going to stay here until they execute me. The Lord has already told them by his word what he's going to do. He's going to bear witness in Rome. And so he takes advantage of this secondary cause. And so notice the next movement. The centurion then goes to the tribune. So we have the tribune, the centurion, and the nephew. All essential links in the chain of communication. But notice the rank and order of this sequence. The information comes to the lowest, and it only reaches the highest man of rank at the end. And he's the one who has authority to do something. But this is the way of the Lord. The Lord has the nephew who has a blood relation to Paul, who would naturally be sympathetic to Paul keeping his life. The nephew hears about it, and then it goes up the chain to the tribune. But what we should see from this is that the existing structures of life are all used to the advantage of the children of God. The existing structures of life, existing structures of authority, mom, dad, teacher, pastor, magistrate, the existing structures of authority are not in the way of that which God is doing to advance the good that he gives to his children and the advance the gospel that he means to bring to the world. So let us not be iconoclast to this degree or anarchist that we think the gospel can only run when we go around existing structures of authority. It's running just fine in our text through the existing structures of authority. Proverbs says that the Lord turns the heart of a king like he can direct the water of a current. He has put it in the tribune's heart to show great kindness to Paul now. And look at the tenderness the tribune shows to Paul's nephew. Takes him by the hand, goes over into a corner, and allows the boy to tell him the secret. Very courteous courteous of him. Verse 19, we read the following. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? 
and he said, and he recounts the whole ambush plan, and the tribune dismisses him, verse 22, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And what happens next? Beginning in verse 23, the tribune marshals 200 spearmen, 200 soldiers, and 70 horsemen. That's a detachment of 470. That is half the population of militiamen at the garrison in Jerusalem. They all are marshaled into service around 9 p.m. at night. And who are they guarding? One man, the Lord's servant. And so from one perspective, when you see that many men taking one prisoner, you might think, that must be a bad prisoner. That's got to be Hannibal Lecter. But from another perspective, the perspective of the righteous, the perspective of those who are true friends of God, we know what's happening. The Lord is using the resources of the earth to guard his servant, to guard his word, to bring it to Rome without disruption. Beloved, this is how our Lord is working even today in all the lands of the earth, including our own little Pleasantville. The Lord is working through all of the structures of modern society. He's working through all of the structures of even those parts of society you wish weren't here. The Lord subverts them all and redirects them all to gather in his elect and bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the ears of new people who are yet outside the kingdom. Everything that happens from this point forward, of course, is a textbook case of true Christian courage. Paul does take courage. Courage, beloved, says to the soul, soul, do not be afraid. The Lord is with you. The Lord is unlocking doors and locking doors. The Lord is before you. The Lord is beside you. The Lord is ordering every detail of your life to your advantage. Even the details you think are most harmful, the Lord is ordering them to your advantage. Not to your advantage in this world, but to your advantage in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is strengthening your faith. He is purifying your heart. He is sanctifying your ambitions. He is reordering your loves and making heaven, making heaven your true hope and your true home. The Lord is not making all things easy for you, but he is making all things for your good. And there is no higher good than that you live by faith in the mercy, in the might, and in the majesty of Jesus Christ. There is no higher good than that. It is very good for you that your life is not being used up on your own pleasures. That's so very good for you. Because those who use up their life on their own pleasures and not on the glory of Jesus Christ, they perish. Christ is using up your life for his namesake. And this alone will give you that joy which can never, ever be taken from you. Two final points of application. 
never overlook, never overlook Paul's use of secondary causes to advance his continuance in life and service to Christ. He gets the word from the nephew and calls for the centurion and puts into play himself his continuation of life. Imagine a spouse who is being abused physically by her husband or abused psychologically by her husband. It would be wrong for her to hear this sermon and say, oh, I'm just supposed to wait for the good to come and do nothing. But the Lord has actually given her a nephew and a centurion. Who is her nephew and centurion? The elders of her church. In the kingdom of God, a battered wife has elders. She is not under the rule of her husband alone. She has elders in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, whom she can go to and report the troubles in her life. This is true also of battered children. And the list could go on. There is secondary cause recourse. We are to use it to advance the good that God has for us. And we are to even say, Lord, you have brought this trouble into my life, perhaps not only to sanctify me, but my husband or my child who are deeply entangled in sin. I will bring it into the light and use the recourse your providence has given me. That's the first application point. The second, and beloved, this comes from James chapter 4. I will just read it to you, or you can turn there if you wish. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Beloved, that is the way to view all of life. What do you want to do? Do you want to do your will? Do you want to lay out all of your plans with a marker, not on a dry erase board, but on stone, and say, this is when I'm going to retire, this is how much money I'm going to have, this is the free time I'm going to have, this is how long I'm going to live in retirement, this is the kind of death I'm going to have, this is how God's going to greet me when I get there. Beloved, you want the Lord's will, don't you? The Spirit of God is set in your heart, and you know it is right and only right to desire the will of God. You don't know what God wants to do with your life. You don't know where you're going to be five years from now or 20. You don't know what the Lord wills for you, but you know this, that what he wills for you is of the greatest good. 
he wills no evil for you. He may allow evil to get close to you, but he will not will anything for you that makes you evil. He wills only the greatest good for you to conform you to the image of his son and to make you radiant in the grace of the gospel and to make your life straight as a testimony to the righteousness of his kingdom. That's what he wills for you. (coughs) If you want something other than that, you don't know him yet. But if you know that you should want that and you struggle with it, run to his arms, grab him like a child, put your arms around his waist, and say, bless me, bless me, Lord, to want your will above all things. Use my life any way you please. He's going to anyway. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have your life used in a state of peace? and praise. Let's pray. Father, Father, bless our work in this world, but bless it, Lord, not according to feeble sense, not according to a desire that it would ascend and be recognized by all men. We We may very well, Lord, It may be your will for us to be scoffed and mocked by all men. Oh, Father, we pray that you would use our lives according to your will and order our hearts to desire this above everything. We thank you, Lord. We cannot thank you enough. We thank you, Lord, that all things, the very nitty-gritty details of everything, an overheard conversation in the street. All things work together for our good. A good that indeed is holy. A good indeed that you stand back and look upon and say, it is good. Oh, Father, we thank you that nothing, nothing is working against the good of your children. That the whole world is, is ordered tomorrow for our good and our advantage. Oh, Lord, we thank you that this puts so much rest in us. It puts so much peace in us when we are stuck in traffic, when something breaks, when something is lost, when something cannot be found. (coughs) It puts so much peace in us when something nasty is said to us puts so much peace in us when Shammai throws rocks at us. Put so much peace in us. Oh, Father, fill us with the peace of a people who know that all things are not disordered and random and at chance, but being worked together by a mighty hand. And keep us from the folly, Lord, of calling all things good. Evil is evil, sin is sin. Wrong is wrong, transgression is transgression. Men are culpable for the very things that you then turn to our advantage. Let us not succumb to the folly of calling everything good, but let us confess that all things work together for good. Hold us in the peace that comes from this confession. Keep us in it. 
In Jesus' name, amen.